You are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Thursday, January 6, 2022. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Right after the BBC headlines, about 50 Californians have been charged with crimes in connection with the storming of the U.S. Capitol one year ago today. The California report has profiles of some of the more flamboyant defendants. After regional news and weather, Bravehearts gives a voice to the voiceless, and we end with an essay from Molly Fisk. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. California has extended its indoor mask mandate through at least February 15th. KQED's Laura Clivens has more. State health officials say the move reflects increasing pressure on hospitals. Roughly 8,000 people are hospitalized for COVID statewide, similar to numbers during September's Delta wave, but less than half of hospitalizations from last winter's surge. Hospitals are admitting more young people many with underlying health conditions, said Dr. Mark Galley, a top health official. Few are landing in the ICU. Omicron is here, and it's here now, and we can't abandon the tools that we've used to achieve our collective success. Tools like vaccines, boosters, and therapeutics. Galley acknowledged, however, demand for tests is outpacing the state's supply. The state now recommends wearing surgical masks or N95s, but is not planning to mandate certain masks. For the California Report, I'm Laura Clivens. In Los Angeles County, employers will be required to provide high-quality masks to employees who work indoors and who are in close contact with others. The update to the county's public health order goes into effect on January 17th. Employers will have to provide workers with medical-grade masks like N95s or KN95s or well-fitting surgical masks. The upgraded mask requirement is similar to one the county issued to schools last week, requiring teachers and staff to wear higher-grade face coverings. More than 2,400 COVID-positive patients are hospitalized in Los Angeles County. Health officials say while those numbers are concerning, especially with staffing shortages at many local hospitals, Hospitals. It's still less than half the total number of people hospitalized during last winter surge. Today marks the one-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, when a mob of pro-Trump supporters violently stormed Congress to try to overturn the lawful 2020 presidential election results. There were many Californians who participated in the insurrection. We wanted to find out a little bit more about some of them and what's happened to them in the year since. So we called NPR investigative correspondent Tom Dreisbach, who's part of a reporting project tracking those involved on January 6th. I started by asking Tom how many Californians have been investigated in the wake of the insurrection. We don't know how many people have been investigated. It's probably a very high number. But we do know how many people have been charged. And it's about 50 people so far from California who've been charged with crimes related to January 6th. That's out of a pool of about a little more than 700 nationwide. The FBI is still going through a massive amount of evidence and continues to make arrests, it feels like, almost every day. And so we expect that number to grow. You've uh, profiled a couple of Californians in particular in the wake of the insurrection. And let's start with Alan Hostetter from Mm -hmm. Orange County. I know him as a former cop turned yoga instructor. Tell us more about him. 
That's right. So Alan Hostetter is definitely one of the most memorable people that have been charged in the Capitol riot. He's from the beach town of San Clemente. Um, He's an army veteran and a former police officer, actually a police chief for the town of La Habra. Uh, Then he recently took up yoga instruction and sound healing. But when COVID hit in spring of 2020, his life completely changed. He became a very prominent far-right activist against masks, against lockdowns. Um, And at points, he would use really violent rhetoric. He said that Governor Newsom would be hanged uh, as a traitor uh, if if this were around the time of the American Revolution. And on January 6th, federal prosecutors allege that he conspired with members of a far-right militia known as the Three Percenters to bring chaos and destruction to the Capitol and to actually obstruct the counting of electoral votes that would confirm Joe Biden had won the election. Hostetter has denied all of the allegations against him, and he has pleaded not guilty, and his trial is still pending. All right, let's turn to another Californian you've profiled, Christian Secor, also from Orange County, went to UCLA. What is he accused of doing during the insurrection, and what's his story? Well, yeah, he was a far-right student at UCLA, and in 2020, he was known for being associated with a far-right movement known as the Groypers. This is a movement associated with a guy named Nick Fuentes, an extremist from Illinois who has pushed white nationalism, anti-Semitism, Holocaust denial. Sikor was also very much into the Second Amendment and gun culture. Federal prosecutors say on January 6th, Sikor went to D.C., He was among the rioters who, they allege, who went inside the Capitol building, actually made it to the Senate chamber, where you can see him on video, as prosecutors describe it, sitting in the chair that the vice president typically sits in. So the chair that Mike Pence just hours before was sitting in. He has pleaded not guilty. Court documents indicate that plea negotiations have been ongoing between him and prosecutors, uh, but we don't know where that will land or if he'll eventually take this case to trial. What, if anything, do you think law enforcement is concerned about looking ahead when it comes to far-right activism or actions being taken in the world by far-right groups with connections or roots here in California? Well, I think law enforcement had a wake-up call, certainly on January 6, 2021. And arguably, and critics will say, that wake-up call came way too late, that the signs of violence were brewing for long before then, and and law enforcement was simply flat-footed. Since then, however, um, we have seen a far-right movement that was initially struggling in the wake of the Capitol riot, was struggling to disown what had happened, but has since actually embraced the events of January 6th, some comparing it to like a Bastille Day that should be celebrated on the far right. I think that certainly leads to concerns among law enforcement that domestic extremists could bring more violence to the country. I think that's true in California, where we have a number of extremist groups that have been active, including the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. But when the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, has himself said positive things about who he calls the patriots who took part in in January 6th, I think that raises a lot of concerns about how extremism has moved further into the mainstream. All right. That is NPR's Tom Dreisbach joining us. Tom, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Saul. Appreciate it. Support for The California Report comes from Stanford Medicine. Protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together. On the web at SchmidtFutures.com. 
and paint care. Now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And that is the California Report for Thursday, January 6th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening. In regional news, PG&E told Ubinet.com this morning that 12,174 customers continue to be without power in the Sierra Division, which includes Nevada County. In Nevada County, 7,774 customers were without power. In Placer County, 2,648 customers were without power. In Sierra County, 438 customers. And in El Dorado County, about 1,300 customers. PG&E told Ubinet.com it had 252 crews on the ground in the Sierra Division today, which will increase to 256 on Friday. Earlier this week, the utility's spokespeople pledged that all customers in Nevada County will have power restored by next Tuesday. The Nevada County Office of Emergency Services announced on social media this afternoon that a mobile laundry and shower unit has been set up at the Eric Rood Center in Nevada City. Residents who have been displaced or are still without power are welcome to use these services, OES said. The showers will be open daily from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. and from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. Laundry can be dropped off throughout the day and picked up 24 hours later. According to OES, these services are being provided at no cost thanks to PG&E. The Sacramento Bee reports this afternoon that Representative Tom McClintock, an outspoken conservative, will seek re-election in a newly drawn congressional district that largely covers territory south of his current seat. The new 5th Congressional District captures parts of Modesto and Fresno, along with the western Sierra Nevada, combining parts of districts currently held by McClintock and former Representative Devin Nunes. McClintock could have opted to run in the new 3rd Congressional District, which covers much of the district he represents now. The new 3rd District contains Nevada County, which for the moment is part of District 1, represented by Doug LaMalfa. Max Rexrode, a Republican consultant, told the Bee last month that former President Trump would only have won by two percentage points in District 3 in 2020, and the district seems likely to get bluer over time. Rexrode told the Bee, We're seeing a lot of people from the Bay Area move up into the areas around Lake Tahoe. They're changing the politics of Nevada County and some of those other areas. The new district, eyed by McClintock, is staunchly Republican. According to several election-tracking organizations, voters there would have backed former President Trump in 2020 with a 12% margin of victory. Nunes, a Republican, resigned from his seat this week to lead Trump's social media venture. On the way out, he endorsed McClintock for the 5th Congressional District seat. 65-year-old McClintock, an Elk Grove Republican, is seeking an eighth term. In 2020, he defeated Bryn Kennedy, a Democrat, by 11 points. Democrat Kermit Jones, who had announced his intent to challenge McClintock this fall, is running in the 3rd District. Now he will likely see a raft of new Republican competitors as potential candidates scramble to decide where they want to run by the March filing deadline. And the Sacramento Bee reports today that the Hyatt Power Plant at Lake Oroville has resumed operations. In August, during one of the low points of the drought, California officials took the unprecedented step of shutting off the hydropower plant, one of the state's largest, because there wasn't enough water in the reservoir. Five months after the shutdown, following weeks of rain and snow, 
the Department of Water Resources announced it has finally resumed operations. Turning to our regional weather, another system is on track to move in tonight, bringing renewed light rain and a chance of mountain snow and valley fog through Friday. This evening in Nevada City and Grass Valley, showers becoming steady rain overnight with a low of 43 degrees. Friday in Nevada City and Grass Valley, occasional rain totaling about a quarter of an inch with a high of 45 and a low of 38. In Truckee tonight, partly cloudy with increasing clouds overnight and a low near 30 degrees. Friday in Truckee, morning snow will give way to lingering snow showers during the afternoon, a high of 35 and a low of 13. In Sacramento this evening, cloudy with a low of 47. Friday in Sacramento, showers in the morning, then cloudy in the afternoon with a high of 54 and a low of 43. Hospitality House collaborates with a spectrum of other local agencies and organizations to meet the medical needs of the unhoused without using emergency room resources. That's the subject of this week's edition of Brave Hearts. Welcome to this edition of Brave Hearts, where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis. We are your hosts, William Wallace and Betty Louise, and these are the Bravehearts. This is part two of the conversation with Hospitality House, and we enter this audio with Joe Nake sharing what the goal is for the collaboration with the county and other agencies in the community. Enjoy. The goal there is to do more upstream services, getting people navigated into substance use disorder treatment, mental health services, housing absolutely is always the final goal. We also have another program where we have case managers that their goal is to connect homeless individuals with primary care physicians so they're not utilizing the emergency department so much. Um, A lot of our folks have a lot of medical complications being out on the street for many years. Sometimes the medical care isn't always there and the emergency department isn't always the best primary care doctor, um, especially as overwhelmed as they are with things that's going on with COVID especially. Um, We also have transportation. We have two full-time hat van drivers that transport folks all over the community to get to their appointments, to get to employment, to get wherever they need to go. Transportation, of course, a lot of our folks don't have vehicles, so that's a key important role. We're currently feeding people in hotels across the community. So we have three or four hotels that we have people stationed in, and they're there and we're able to support them with meal delivery from our culinary program from the shelter. And then we have our traditional street outreach. I've got three folks that are, that's what they do all day long. They're supporting with the warming shelter, partnering with Sierra Roots, making sure we're getting people when the weather is like it is today, when it's snowy and rainy, and just meeting people where they're at. In a nutshell, street outreach is going to people, not asking them to come to us, but meet people where they're at, go into the camps, provide opportunity for services, all the while partnering with our local law enforcement. We do a number of things. We do trainings with law enforcement. We actually have an embedded case manager that's 40 hours a week is with a uh, Grass Valley Police Department. We call it CalVIP. She's a licensed clinical social worker. 
So yeah, a lot of things. I direct traffic and make sure that everybody's getting where they need to go and that all the services that our individuals need are being met. Hospitality has always had at least one street outreach worker. There was another individual with the county who did a little bit of outreach work, but for the most part it was you know one person. We would organize camp cleanups. We haven't been able to do it with COVID, but that's another huge piece I'm hoping to start up again in May, where a couple times a year we have volunteers, we get partnering community agencies to get together. We go out, we identify where there's trash that's been accumulated in our woods and clean that up and keep our community beautiful. Mm. Tyson, let me ask you, so what does the program officer at Hospitality House do? For me, I oversee all the in-house programs, so the shelter mainly. And within that shelter, we have other programs that we provide. We do have a mental health case manager on staff that's in a partnership with Turning Point Community Programs, and they help people connect to mental health services. We do have a job training case manager, and within the shelter, we offer three different job training programs to help assist people to kind of get back in the workforce. Um, Once they complete whatever job training program they're a part of, we transition them over to an employment program, Alliance for Workforce Development, which is out of the Brighton Greens Center. And they help connect these folks with jobs. And then once they're secure and working, uh, they come back to us and we assist them in finding housing. We also have a medical case manager through a grant that helps people within the shelter with their acute medical needs, connections to specialists and transportation to doctors and all of those things. We also have an ARGP case manager, which ARGP is Adult Reentry Grant Program, which is assisting people who have been incarcerated, kind of return to normal life. When they come to her, they're working, they're working towards getting off. If they have probation or parole, they're working towards something positive and she assists them with housing. And then just the general shelter operations. We have an outreach storm, which is a come as you are every night, come in, get some shelter, get some food, get, you know, be able to take a shower and just relax get out of the elements. And that's um, an important thing, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but you know, for a long time, hospitality house operated as what we call high barrier. You had to be clean and sober mm-hmm. to come in, you had to breathalyze. Right. The outreach storm in partnership with the county has allowed us to have 11 beds downstairs. Mm-hmm. So if people are under the influence, that's a major barrier to getting shelter, people struggling with addiction. So be able to come in, as Tyson said, come as you are, and then work with case management with eventually getting some of those upstream uh, services you get upstairs. Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well and be kind. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please visit calhum.org. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. It turns out even on day four of a ferocious countywide power outage, you can still find surreptitious ice cubes in the second tray from the bottom in your disconnected freezer. Not whole thick ones, but hollowed out delicate skeletons of ice cubes, plenty cold enough still to make a glass of ice water. Even though it's 33 degrees outside and 9 o'clock at night, I had a sudden hankering for ice water, and I felt very lucky. 
One could, of course, scoop up a little snow from the several feet of it on the deck, but that's not the healthiest thing to imbibe, I'm told. Covered with air pollution, acid rain, and God knows what all as it is. Yesterday, I was ready to cash in my chips, fold up my tent, say goodbye to all that, and otherwise leave this mortal coil. I was so demoralized. But then I got a good night's sleep, from 5 p.m. right when it got dark to 3 a.m. when my sleep apnea machine's battery ran out. Ten hours is plenty, even if it's slightly askew. So I lit some candles and did the dishes, feeling quite cheerful. I'll have to check the crockery in daylight to make sure it actually got clean, but that was at least a start on getting my groove back. Then I made an eggnog latte, one of the joys of the season, and sat on the couch by the light of my propane-fired wood stove equivalent and thought about things. Being a writer, sitting around thinking is part of my job, but it feels like goofing off. Making the thoughts into coherent series of paragraphs is the work part. I thought about my cat, Sid, who just died, and what it felt like carrying him out of the house towards his grave, which a friend had dug for me the day before. He settled into my arms the exact same way he used to when he was alive. It was the sweetest thing. I was crying, which I never do anymore, and I don't really know why. I might be close to all cried out. I thought about the damage the snowstorm has done to us and the work it will take to clean up after it, and then I thought about that being better than everything burning up in a fire. I considered the woodpeckers I've been watching drill holes in my apple tree and wondered where they sleep in snowy weather. I have no idea where birds sleep at all, in fact, and I should probably find this out. It seems like something a well-rounded person ought to know. As it got light, the snow out the windows turned blue and then a paler gray-blue and then bright white. It was actually snowing. I groaned, got dressed, and went outside to whack the birch tree, which was again loaded down to the ground. It sprang up with the snow removed, and I think it won't break yet. I ended up feeling cheerful for the entire day, capped off by the secret discovery of ghostly ice cubes. And I just want to say to you, and myself, because it bears repeating, it's fine to despair for a while. Of course, we all feel it. But remember, things change. And even if you don't give two hoots about ice water, sometimes surprises await us tomorrow. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, Money Matters with Mark Cuniberti. At 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. At 8 p.m., we return to the music you love as Derek Washington hosts Jazz Workshop. And at 10 p.m., it's Road Dog Radio with DJ Llama Socks. 
The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs every weekday at 6 p.m. KVMR Community Radio gets support from Sweetland Garden Mercantile, downtown North San Juan, offering organic gardening supplies, hardware, tools, PVC, and more. Welcoming 2022 with bare root trees. Monday through Saturday, 9 to 5, sweetlandgm.com, dig it. And Harmony Books of Nevada City, locally owned for over 25 years next to the Chamber of Commerce at 130 Main Street. Open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 5.30, Sundays 11 to 4. Harmony Books carries thousands of books, including local authors. This is Joyce Miller signing off and wishing you a safe Thursday evening.